0: it was the darkest time yet. Crusader armies had not only sacked Jerusalem, massacred thousands, but they had even established kingdoms, built castles, as if they planned to be there forever. And the worst thing was that the Muslim response was weak, disorganized. Muslim princes were fighting against each other, even making alliances with the Christian invaders to try and beat each other. It looked like the darkest of times, and we know from this story is going to emerge some of the great leaders who will establish a new chapter in Muslim history, one that really leads up to the 20th century. But in the 12th century, that seemed pretty far off. So join us today as we look at the next installment in this really critical phase of Muslim history, Part 2 of the Crusades. back. Now, before we begin, I just want to thank uh, all of you who have sent emails and comments. I received uh, many very kind and very informative emails. A lot of you have some very good suggestions or ideas to include on this podcast and uh, some comments. And I definitely, definitely appreciate those. Please keep them coming. It's always great to hear from you. So now on to the Crusades. Welcome to our second edition of our discussion of the Crusades. There are going to be uh, several episodes of this because, as I said, I think this is really probably the most important incident, series of events in what we call relations between Islam and the West. Well, if you remember where we left off last time, after the First Crusade, when the Muslims were so disorganized and divided, the Crusaders had capitalized on that. They captured most of what is today Palestine, Lebanon, and southern Turkey, and they set up Crusader kingdoms, as they're called. And we know about the terrible massacres of Jerusalem and other places, and how really impotent the Muslim forces were to fight against them. And remember, we're talking about the great Muslim empire that once stretched from Spain to India and was threatening Europe itself, was driving all the way up into France, now to find itself not only losing on the fringes, which they were in places like Spain, but here is an invasion right in your heartland, right in your holy land, uh, and they don't seem to be going anywhere. As I mentioned, the Crusaders build huge castles, they really build infrastructure, and it's obvious that they intend to stay there. I mean, they're establishing kingdoms, establishing dynasties. Well, of course, uh, we know how this story ends. There's going to be a triumph. We know great leaders, particularly Salah Hadin, is going to emerge, and he's going to really inaugurate a new chapter in Muslim history that arguably, you could say, runs right up into the 20th century. But those great triumphs are still a long ways off. And so this is not a story... Uh, where we can say that the first crusade really caught the Muslims off-guard, but then they got their act together and went out and won it. No, it's going to be a very, very slow process. So let's just have a brief review of the state of the Muslim world at this time before we begin. Uh, as you remember, the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate, which was based in Egypt, but had controlled you know, much of the Levant, much of Syria, by this time was very weak and unstable. And the caliphs were basically figureheads who were dominated by their military leaders. And those military leaders were often uh, very unpredictable. On the other hand, the once great Abbasid Caliphate, the Sunni Caliphate, based in Baghdad, was in even worse shape. I mean, those caliphs were definitely figureheads, and the real power was in the hands of the Seljuk Turks. Now, it was the Seljuk expansion against the Byzantines. I mean, by this time, they had taken over half of what is modern-day Turkey, and if you know where the Byzantine Empire sits and how much territory they've lost, uh, they really don't have much left at this time, and this is what led the Byzantine Emperor to call for help from the Pope, And this is how the Crusades get started in the first place. Well, be careful what you ask for because the help that the Byzantine Emperor gets quickly gets out of control And after a while, we'll find the Byzantine emperor actually appealing to the Abbasid Caliphs to try and help him stop these European crusaders. But the Caliph has no more power to do that than than the Byzantines do themselves. Now, it actually might sound strange, but the Suljic Sultan, who is really the strongest person in this whole mix, actually preferred to have small basically independent city-states run by their own warlords, because this way he could play them off uh, against one another. And so this meant that when the Crusader armies came, not only was there no united resistance among the Muslims, but the various emirs, the princes... Uh, they actually saw the Crusaders as tools that they could use against each other. Now, remember, these are foreign invaders coming, you know, very strange-looking people. But uh, you've been in rivalries and wars, sometimes for generations, against other families of princes. And to them, that seems like a more important thing. Now, this is not to say that there was no Muslim reaction Okay. Public opinion was very strong. I mean, we have the princes, we have the generals jockeying for power, but the average people who are hearing the stories of refugees and hearing about the, the massacres and what the crusaders are doing, uh, they are pouring into the major cities like Cairo and Baghdad, and they are demanding action. And it's really the local religious leaders, the imams. Now, I don't want to confuse imam in Shia means uh, something very different, but a Sunni imam is a local prayer leader and you don't have a pastor you don't have a priest uh, but they are being very vocal demanding that the the caliph do something and in many cases there are instances where crowds burst in on the the caliph's palace during ceremonies and demand action but the problem here is that neither the caliph nor the uh, sultan really has the influence to put together an organized response. Now, this does not mean that there was no jihad going on. Uh, there was. In fact, the Fatimid caliph, he called for a jihad at one point, and he actually commandeered the caravans of pilgrims who were headed to Mecca and made them go out to Palestine to fight. The only problem, they weren't fighting crusaders, they were fighting other Muslim princes. And again, this is something we have to keep Uh, re-emphasizing. You know, nowadays we have this image of this clash of religions, Christianity versus Islam. But for the most part, these guys are far more interested in fighting prince against prince, and they're not too interested in whether you're a Latin Christian or a Shiite or a Muslim. The question is, can you help me? Well, this kind of illustrates the problem and really gives us a an idea of the difference between European and Middle Eastern history. Now, if we look at the really big picture here, we know in European history, the medieval period, the Middle Ages, are the dark times, right? We have the glory of the Roman Empire, we have this dark period, and then we have the Renaissance after that. And so the, the medieval period is a low point. When we're looking at Muslim history, it's almost the opposite. Of course, we have the Jahaliya the age of ignorance. We have the golden age, you know, what this series is called. The golden age of Islam is going on at the same time as Europe is in the dark ages. Well, by now things are in decline, and so we have to look at it as it's almost the complete opposite. And the crusades here give us a good idea of why this is. Look, in both cases, Right. Both in Europe and in the Middle East at this time, uh, politics is dominated by local warlords. Really, it's the city-state that's important. Of course, in Europe, you have feudalism. You have these feudal barons. You have these knights um, who control the land, and they're actually your military aristocracy. We have a similar thing really developed in in the Middle East, where these different city-states each have their own emirs who control their own forces, and that's where the real power is. And so the higher-level leaders, like kings and popes and caliphs, basically they have to recruit support from these local barons. The big difference here, though, is that history is moving in two different directions. In Europe, things are getting more and more centralized, okay, Uh, the, the polities are getting larger, the kingdoms are actually getting stronger, the emperors are getting stronger, the popes are getting stronger, and so when these recruiting calls come out, they get tremendous response, And so when the Pope goes out, and this is what he does, he goes on tours, basically to all these different European capitals, trying to get people to donate forces, because he's got no army of himself, he gets an overwhelming response. If we look at the Muslim world, it's almost the exact opposite. They are coming from a time when they had very strong centralized empires. Remember, the, the Muslim empire is the largest, most powerful empire the world had seen up until this point. What's happening is things are disintegrating. They're going in the opposite direction. And so uh, the caliph, or even the, the sultan, has to do essentially the same thing that the pope does. He has to go around and try and recruit support from these princes, but In that part of the world, things are going in the opposite direction, and so it gets much harder for them. So even though they're both really facing the same type of situation, uh, for the Europeans, they're able to do this much more successfully, at least for a while, and that's what we'll discuss here. In fact, rivalry between the Muslim generals is exactly how this notorious massacre of Jerusalem takes place. Now this is uh, somewhat of a strange story, so it's worth going over here. Um, So ostensibly, the Crusaders came to this area at the request of the Byzantines to liberate the city of Antioch, and Antioch is on the Mediterranean up where uh, southern Turkey and uh, northern Lebanon is today, but it was a very important city and probably the second most important city in the Levant area after Jerusalem itself, and it had fallen to the Seljuks. And so this, ostensibly, is the reason why there are now Western Europeans in this area. But as we know, success leads to more ambition, and they keep rolling on. But how are they able to do this? Well, in the year 1098, a delegation from the Fatimids, and remember the Fatimids are Shia based in Egypt, but they had controlled much of Palestine up until recently, and they had just recently lost it to some Seljuk princes. So they see an opportunity to get it back. So they send a delegation by sea to Antioch, because the Fatimids actually have a fleet in the Mediterranean at this time. And the the Crusaders are said to be very impressed with this delegation. They speak many languages, they speak European languages, uh, and they make a very simple offer— The Crusaders can keep Antioch, they can keep northern Palestine and Lebanon, and supposedly they're going to return it to the Byzantines, which they never do, Uh, but the Fatimids, in turn, will get to retake Jerusalem. Remember, they had controlled Jerusalem up until very recently, and the Seljuks had captured it from them. And the Crusaders go along with this deal. So, again, this idea that the Crusades were driven by this religious fervor of people in France wanting to go liberate Jerusalem and, and get the true cross back, I mean, that's definitely not what's happening here. I mean, they're, they're willing to, to sell Jerusalem uh, if it helps them consolidate their gains. But as we know... Wars have a way of taking on a life of their own, which is why you always have to be careful. The stated aims of any war usually get forgotten pretty quick. And armies that are winning usually keep going on winning, no matter what promises they've made. So the Byzantine emperor, he quickly acknowledges that he has lost control of these crusaders. And not only that, he's he's a bit appalled by what they do. Um, they're They're shocked. Remember, Byzantines and Muslims have lived side by side for centuries. Yeah, there's a lot of war between them, but there's almost a, a sort of respect. At least we could say the fact that Byzantine Christians in the, the Abbasid, uh, Muslims, see each other as humans. Whereas these crusaders come in, I mean, they really don't. I mean, they really treat the, the people that they conquer as, as animals. They slaughter them. Okay, so he's, he's lost control of the Crusaders. And eventually, uh, just spoiler alert in this story, later on in the Fourth Crusade, uh, the Latin Crusaders actually sacked the city of Constantinople itself. Okay, so the idea that they're ha- helping the Byzantines is totally gone by this point anyway, with this kind of momentum behind them, the Crusaders are very unlikely to keep their agreement with the Fatimids about Jerusalem. Now, officially what happens is the Fatimids do take Jerusalem back in 1098, and then they come back to the Franks, the Crusaders as they call them, uh, with a deal that the Franks didn't like. And in their proposal, they said they would allow between 200 to 300 Christian pilgrims to visit Jerusalem each year. Now this might sound like a strange point to have a war about. We have to remember that many of the Crusader soldiers... um, if, if not the leaders, if not the princes and kings who participate in that, a lot of the normal people who sign up for this thing uh, do so as a religious mission, and the goal of that is to go on the pilgrimage, or at least the pilgrimage is a very important part to them. They think you can go to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you can uh, make penance for your sins, and it's a big deal. You know, it's estimated that during the Middle Ages over 80% of the population spent their entire lives within a 10-mile radius from the place they were born. So if you're talking about someone going from France all the way to to Palestine, to Jerusalem, this is a huge event. You don't want to go back to your village and say, yeah, I, I got almost to Jerusalem, but I never went inside. Uh, you know That would be very disappointing. Now, we don't know the accurate size of the Crusader armies at this time, but about 35,000 fighting men is the estimate. But that's just the fighters, and these armies travel with a large amount of retainers and baggage handlers, uh, you know, basically what we would call support troops nowadays. So we're talking possibly upwards of 100,000 people. Well, the Fatimids are willing to let 300 a year get in there. I mean, obviously, this is not going to work. And the truth is that most of the Crusader soldiers do return to Europe after the Crusade. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Sit around for 10 years waiting for your turn to go in and and visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? So, uh, this deal is obviously a no-go. On the other side, it, it really seems like the Fatimids couldn't handle that many more troops. Remember, they're extremely weak. Uh, their army is in extremely bad shape. In letting in, say, 10, 20, or 30,000 Christians at once, they probably would have lost control of the city. Okay, so um, the Crusaders decide, hey, you know, we're winning this thing big time. These people can't put up any effective resistance to us, so why not put the holy places under direct Christian control? instead of making deals with some, some Muslims. And if you're doing that, why give it to the Byzantine Orthodox, which, you know, most of us think are heretics, why not make them directly controlled by the, the Catholic Church? Now, it, it doesn't seem that this was the Pope's initial uh, plan, but, I mean, when, it's a target of opportunity. Hey, what a great thing. Let's do it. Okay, so you would think at this time that the Muslims especially the Fatimids would have learned from this experience that you can't make deals with the Crusaders. I mean, eventually they get driven out of Jerusalem. There's a terrible slaughter. Uh, so you'd think this would be the last time anyone makes a deal with them. But that realization is going to be very slow in coming. And, you know, this is just one of the laws of history that politics, power politics, trumps almost everything. Okay. Another reason for the the sort of strange response that we're seeing, though, is the nature of the threat. And I think this is a very important point that is lost today. We tend to look at the Crusades as religious wars. And, of course, that's that's the, uh, the purpose, supposedly. And I'm not going to say that the Crusades are not religious wars, but I think we tend to overestimate the religious side of this and downplay the other side. Um, from the Muslim side, we have to recognize that In their opinion, the threat is not Christianity. They've been living with Christians for centuries. Of course, inside the Muslim states, Christians have protected status. Some of the most prominent scholars and even political leaders in the Muslim states have been Christians and also Jews. Outside their borders, they have been dealing with the Byzantines for centuries. And and so, as I said, I mean, there's been a lot of wars back and forth between them, but there's sort of a respect. I mean, the Byzantines and the Abbasids and the Fatimids deal with each other the way you would deal with other nations, with equals. I mean, not the way you deal with savages or animals. The people who are tearing up Palestine are never referred to as Christians. They are always referred to as Franks. Now, that word, of course, refers to France. It's the medieval term for what would become France. And it's used for everybody, even though um, Crusaders are coming from England, they're coming from Germany, they're coming from Italy, all over. They're all called Franks. But the key point I want to get here is this is a nationalist term, not a religious term. It refers to an empire, not a religion. And even in most Arab histories today... The Crusades are seen as the first part of a long series of conquests that will eventually get the name imperialism. The word didn't exist back then. Um, but it's significant, in particularly in the Muslim narrative, which has a lot of accuracy to it, that shortly after the Crusades end, uh, Muslim Spain falls and then we have immediately waves of European conquistadors going to the Americas, then they go to Africa, then much of Asia, and then finally the Middle East is colonized. And so while we in the West tend to separate this, okay, the Crusades are these religious wars and then after this comes these uh, this period of colonialism, these imperialistic wars, from an Arab view it's one continuous process. Uh, you, you don't really see these as religious things. But again, the, the point here is that the enemy, in their mind, is it's not Christianity. It is this uh, sort of uh, empire-building, land-grabbing, Western European mindset. Uh, and this is important because it persists to this day. I mean, quite unfortunately... Uh, the U.S. military presence in the Middle East is seen in the same light, and very often the establishment of Israel is seen in this same light. And so, this is why we always talk about Islam versus the West, right? That sounds like apples and oranges. It's a religion versus a compass direction. We don't talk about Islam versus Christianity, although many in the West paint it that way. So, the threat here is really this political military expansionist threat. It's not a religion. The Crusaders, they see it a different way. But this is the way it's seen in the West. Okay. If that's the way you see these invaders, then, I mean, they're just another bunch of warlords, and it's understandable that you would see them in a, as possible allies in your ongoing power struggles with the other warlords you're fighting. So that's one reason why some of these alliances develop. first successful military leader against the crusaders emerges about 50 years after the first crusade. He's not exactly going to fit the bill of the uh, Muslim holy warrior that we expect. He's not quite a Salah ad-Din, but he does really pave the way for Salah ad-Din. And his name is Imad ad-Din Zengi. And he is a Turk of Central Asian origin, but he's working for the Seljuks at this time. Uh, originally, his, his lineage comes from what is Kazakhstan today. Now, it takes a long time for the Muslim response to develop to the famous Salah ad So, Zengi is about the best you're going to get in the mid-1100s. In 1120, Zengi is the prince of Aleppo, which is in northern Syria. And Aleppo is the second city of Syria, but it's a perennial rival of Damascus. These two are almost always fighting. How he actually gets into this position is very, very convoluted. Uh, But basically, his father had been the prince, or Bey is the term that's used, and he was defeated and beheaded by the Prince of Damascus, which is just, I mean, this is just tit for tat. It's going on back and forth between these two for a long time. Zengi, however, he lives, and he is raised in Iraq, but he gets the attention of the Soljuk Sultan, because Zengi is pretty ruthless and effective, and let's face it, I mean, his father has been beheaded, so he's got kind of a chip on his shoulder. He wants to go back there and, and do some damage. So after a long series of attacks and betrayals and alliances back and forth leaves Aleppo open, the sultan sees an opportunity to get control of that city and he sends Zengi there. Now as we have said many times so far, and will continue to say, the Abbasid caliphs at this point are are basically figureheads, and the Seljuk Turks are running things. But the caliphs don't always roll over and play dead. I mean, they they know their history. They know who they are. So in the 1120s and 30s, we actually have a pretty active Abbasid caliph who's trying to get his power back from the sultan. And he does this. Of course, he doesn't have any power of his own, but you make alliances. You win over various warlords who have an axe to grind against the Seljuk uh, sultan. So anyway, this sultan, who is Mahmoud II, he wants to make sure that he can control Aleppo with one of his guys and not a guy who is more uh, amenable to the sultan. And Zengi, for whatever else you want to say about him, he's pretty mirth- merciless, he's pretty ruthless, so he's a good guy to have on your side. Okay, later on, through another long series of betrayals and backstabbings, uh, and then also princes dying of natural causes and leaving their sons to fight it out, Damascus, the big prize, is left open. And Zengi, he jumps on this. He is going to try and control Damascus. Because if you control both, you really control all of Syria. And Syria is a very rich uh, land in this area. Now, you might remember just a few minutes ago, I said Zengi is the first guy to really fight against the Crusaders. Well, it's been several decades since the Crusaders conquered Palestine and had their notorious massacres. But our, our hero here, he's still immersed in Muslim versus Muslim fighting. I mean, he's fighting for a city that the Crusaders don't control. And yeah, this is the situation at the time. If you want to fight the Crusaders, you basically have to fight a lot of other Muslim princes to just get the power base so you can do this. Well, how does this guy end up fighting against Crusaders? Well, it's really a real backdoor kind of action. Now think about this, if you're the governor of Damascus, and there was a really long series of very short-lived, weak governors of Damascus at this time, uh, you want to keep Zengi out. And so you need allies. Well, of course, you've been making alliances with the Fatimids, with the Abbasids whenever you can, but they're pretty weak at this point. You have to look around and find out somebody with an effective military who you can get on your side. Well, there's a kingdom right next door with an army. Yeah, it just happens to be the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, but they're another power player in this region too. They may be brutal and savage in your opinion, but if you want to defeat your enemy, uh, you want an ally who's pretty scary. Okay, and so this goes back to the point I made in our last episode that, you know, you can hate somebody and still work with them. I mean, Stalin was our ally in World War II, right? And that's the situation here. Damascus realizes that they're going to have to ally with the crusader king of Jerusalem. And trust me, he's not there uh, for charitable reasons either. Uh, The crusaders would really love to get Damascus. If they could control Damascus or Egypt, this would be tremendous for building their power base, Remember, these guys are building huge castles out of stone. They don't plan to be going anywhere anytime. Okay, so back to Zengi, who's basically looking to take over Damascus from another Muslim Turk. He is going to be thrust by fate into the role of defender of Islam. I mean, it's not something he does out of a religious vision or something else. Whatever else you want to say about Zengi, though, he's pretty good on the battlefield. So he crushes the crusader army that comes from Jerusalem to fight him. Never mind why they were fighting... He beats a crusader army pretty badly, and this is not going to go unnoticed. I mean, particularly for the the local populace, the population of Jerusalem, who are more concerned with the reality of the threat of these crusaders. Here comes a guy who just whacks their army. He's going to be your hero. Okay. Okay. Here's where the luck part comes in though, and this is really like one of those Hitchcock movies where somebody just ends up at the wrong place in the wrong time or the right place, however you want to look at it, so the Byzantine Empire, okay, and you remember they've lost control of the Crusaders, okay, and the emperor he's trying he's trying to get back in this um this fight particularly because palestine is in his backyard and seeing chaos and massacres going on there uh, is really pretty frightening so by the year 1130 he has asserted control over antioch remember that was supposed to be his in the first place he's also allied with one of the crusader kingdoms there were five in total that were set up and this is the weakest one Um, and the one that the Latin Christians had changed the least, it's also the one that's furthest away. It's in northern Syria, and that is the county of Edessa. And the names these these places are given are like modern translations, but this one's called the county of Edessa. This is located between Antioch and Aleppo, which again is Zengi's home base. So... They see an opportunity here, right? You, you've got Zengi tied up down in Damascus fighting there. And, you know, in this uh, environment of backstabbing, you know, if you leave your home base to go fight somewhere, you can be sure someone's going to run in and try and, uh, and take it from you. So in the year 1138, a combined army of Byzantines and Crusaders from Edessa attack Zengi's territory around Aleppo. This might have worked, except Zengi is a pretty shrewd guy. So he manages to get control of Damascus. He realizes he has to go back and put out the fire in in his home base. And fighting is going to take a long time. Damascus has very strong walls. And so um, he goes through a real shady uh, series of alliances and betrayals and eventually marries the woman who assassinated her own son, who was the contender for the Prince of Damascus. So, I mean, this is, this is a pretty sleazy story, but he marries his way into control of Damascus. Um, and so Damascus, which is south of Aleppo, of course, is now secure. We have the Byzantine Edessa army that's coming from the northwest. Zengi is now able to move all his troops up from the south and take them on in the north. And, I mean, he basically destroys them on the battlefield, and he carries the momentum to Edessa itself. Remember, Edessa has sent its army out there. They just got trashed on the battlefield. Okay, so now their home base is weak. And so, Zengi conquers the city of Edessa in the year 1144. The significance of this, though, I mean, it seems like just one minor switch, and it really isn't uh, that great an operation, but this is the first crusader state to fall to a Muslim ruler. And again, this is going to establish a precedent, people are going to hear about this, and it will not be lost on people. Now, unlike Salah ad who was famous for his kind treatment of prisoners and for honoring his word, uh, Zengi, he promises to spare his enemies, and then once they surrender the city to him, he has a massive uh, slaughter when they surrender. Okay, so it's very clear now that Zengi is increasing his domain and is increasing his power, and whether he does it on the battlefield or whether he does it through alliances and maneuvering, this guy is pretty good. I mean, he set out to conquer a Muslim city, but ended up conquering a crusader city just because of opportunity. Well, if you're an average Muslim citizen at this time, not one of the princes, but just an average person... Uh, This is the first good news you hear, and so he starts to develop a really popular um, power base. I mean, public opinion, he is a hero. Now, Zengi is is, as far away from receiving messages from God and having holy visions as you can get. But if you want to give the populace something to hang their hopes on, I mean, your propaganda machine is going to kick in big time. And remember I said it's the religious leaders, the imams, the preachers. I mean, they're the ones who are basically, uh, you know, sounding the alarm bells about the threat of the crusaders. And now they've got their hero. And we have seen even in our own day, how religious leaders uh, will tend to turn a political figure into some sort of savior. And so Zengi, for better or worse, he becomes the savior of Islam. Well, for all his faults, Zengi has started something. He will eventually be a, uh, assassinated by a Frank. Now, it, the reason it happens is because the guy was stealing wine from him. Uh, but again, this just increases his legend. He's assassinated in his sleep by a f- evil Frank. Okay, so Zengi's conquest, it gets big press on both sides. The Muslim histories traditionally cite this as the beginning of the Jihad against the Crusaders. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a pretty weak uh, accidental beginning, but it does start something. But for the Crusaders the loss of this one, even smallest territory, was a bit of a shock. So in response, the Pope is gonna call for another crusade to retake it. And this, of course, is gonna be the second crusade. Uh, And this one, though, will succeed in bringing in much bigger names. We get the King of France, we get the Holy Roman Emperor, who will join in this. And it gives you an idea of what the momentum is at least in Western Europe, from what they're hearing, they're hearing about these tremendous conquests, right? The Holy Land is now back in Christian hands. We're building kingdoms. Oh, you have to see these amazing palaces. And this sounds very permanent. So you lose even one of these kingdoms, I mean, this is going to seem like a pretty small loss in what's going to happen in the subsequent years, but to them, this is like a big shock. Oh no, we got to go right back there and get it back. And they do. There's tremendous popular response for this. Well, Zengi dies, but it's really the next generation that's going to lead the fight against the Crusaders. And, and they will be different. For them, this will become a religious struggle. Um, and I think this is basically a generational thing. Even what Zengi sees in the Crusaders and, and the terrible things he sees them doing, I mean, he still grew up in a world of power politics with Muslim lords backstabbing each other. I mean, that's, that's in his DNA. The new generation, though, we're talking people who are born in the 1100s when the crusader states are already established, when the stories of the massacres are just commonplace, and they're growing up with a different mindset. And we're going to see that here. So anyway, uh, Zengi dies, and his son Noradin succeeds him as the emir of Aleppo. But the rest of his territory gets carved out between his other sons. But Nur ad-Din is really going to be the first we could say uh, true uh, warrior against the Crusaders—the one who really goes out and does this uh, intentionally. And actually, he might have become the great hero if he were not very shortly superseded by Salah ad-Din, who is of course number one. In the process, though. Okay, Nur ad-Din, who wants to build up his power base, and of course he wants to take back everything that once belonged to his father, he's going to recruit some very important people. Among them is a Kurdish warrior in Iraq named Shirkuh, who will become his main general. Shirkuh's brother Ayyub, who will become a a, a governor. He's actually a a very important administrator. And with them comes Ayyub's young son, who is a youth who will be known as Salah His name is Yusuf at the time, but this is Salah who is, of course, the star of this whole story. Spoiler alert there. But we're seeing uh, this is an entourage of some of the best anti-crusader fighters, and they're in one nucleus. And this is what Norahdin, one thing he's good at is spotting talent, and you got some real talent here. Now, Nordin, like Zengi, is a tough fighter, a tough leader, a strict disciplinarian, but unlike Zengi, he is seen as being very pious and honorable. Uh, he's known to be scrupulously honest with his treasury. In fact, it said that he doesn't take any money out of the state treasury. He's actually got his own farms, his own estates, and he lives off of those. And there's this famous story where his wife comes to him. Uh, she wants jewels. She wants to use money that's in the state treasury. And he says, absolutely not. Okay, now... Again, there's a, there's a bit of a difficulty here because Salah Adin and Nur ad-Din, these people are so venerated in all the histories, it's really hard to figure out what's hype and what's not. I mean, these guys are probably not the Boy Scouts that they are set up to be. But in in any case, in both sides, on both the Christian Chronicles and the Muslim Chronicles, these two guys come out very well. Again, as I say, Nur ad-Din probably wouldn't have been a big star if he was not very, um, very shortly superseded by Salah hadin. But Nur ad-Din, he definitely sees that the big threat is the Crusaders, and he wants to unite all of Syria against them. But again, it's the same problem. He wants to fight the Crusaders, but you can't fight the Crusaders first until you consolidate the Muslim forces, and that is not by appealing to them to work together, uh, that is by fighting various princes. Anyway, in the process of this, he is able to inflict some seriously big defeats on the crusader state of Antioch. Remember, this is the one that started the whole thing. He doesn't actually conquer the city, but he he conquers most of the area around that. And every time they send out an army, he, he basically defeats them. He doesn't focus on Antioch because, again, his main goal is Damascus. This is always the key to Syria. Now, the politics of Damascus at this time is a really convoluted mess of weak leaders in rapid succession, of assassinations, of betrayals, a lot of shady deals uh, that we don't want to go into all the details. But the key point is that Damascus is basically surviving because they have an alliance with the crusader king of Jerusalem. Now, this is a one-sided alliance. They, they're essentially paying protection money, a lot of protection money, to Jerusalem. But notice the pattern here, a Sunni Muslim city in an alliance with a Catholic Crusader kingdom against another Sunni Muslim power. Well, how Nur ad-Din manages to take over Damascus depends on who you listen to. Some historians call it a siege. Others, basically the admirers of ad-Din, say he camps his army outside of Damascus and wins over public opinion. But this is definitely not the kind of siege where you starve out the city. Damascus itself, the fortified part of it, the city walls, is actually a very tiny area. Most of the people live outside the city. There's fertile ground. Most of the people live in farms and villages around the city of Damascus. You only retreat inside the walls when you're under attack. And that's not what happens here. So Nur basically has got his guys outside Damascus talking to everybody out there, convincing them that life would be much better with him in charge, And that's pretty much true compared to the mess that they have going on inside the city. And he gets a huge popular uh, following. The leaders of the city perhaps don't want him around, but the average uh, person does. The average citizen wants him. And so he promises that he's going to revitalize the city, cut the ties with the crusaders, and reduce taxes. And unlike Zengi... His father, when Norodin actually does get in charge, he fulfills all his promises. He's actually only reported to be involved in one massacre, and, and that was after a lot of bad blood and some betrayals going on. Norodin has a reputation for being good on his promises. Okay, well, as we said, there was a second crusade coming, ostensibly to retake Edessa, which Zengi had captured. The European side of the Second Crusade is far more successful than the Middle Eastern end of it. The recruiting effort, which is led by the Pope and the the monk Bernard of Clairvaux, who is extremely persuasive, is hugely popular. Remember, I talked about that dynamic in Europe. People really want to get in on this thing. Uh, Europe is having a population boom. The economy's booming. There's not really enough land uh, for all the different feudal lords who are coming. So the idea that you can go off, establish territory, get yourself a fiefdom in a foreign land, and there's tons of loot, this is really attractive. So when the Pope and Bernard go on their recruiting tour, uh, I I mean, it's like the Beatles coming to town. I mean, they are just swamped. And so they are able to recruit both uh, King Louis VII of France and the Holy Roman, which is essentially the German Emperor Conrad, plus a whole host of counts and barons sign up. The military side of this operation, though, is a complete disaster. On one hand, the presence of so many rulers is actually a bad thing. I mean, it's great for recruiting, but I mean, these are not the guys you want out fighting. For one thing, they don't coordinate amongst each other. So all these different armies, they go on different routes, on different timetables. They're uncoordinated, which makes them easy to pick off. And you also have these nobles are bringing huge households and luxuries with them, these massive caravans. Probably the most famous of them all is the Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is known for her love of luxury. She was married to King Louis of France at this time. Later on, she divorces him and marries the King of England. But she comes along on the crusade, and she's not there to fight, okay? She is not Joan of Arc. She brings a huge entourage of some 300 servants in tons of luxury goods, and these things are not easy to transport across a desert, and particularly across a land that you don't know that's completely foreign to you. But they are there because they've heard that there are kingdoms, there's loot and glory. And of course, the story from the First Crusade is, I mean, this was a cakewalk. These savages are so poorly organized, you can just wade through them. I mean, essentially the same thing that Europeans are going to do when they go to the Americas, when they go to Africa. That's the, the sense they've gotten from the First Crusade. Well... This crusade is not even defeated in a battle. I mean, they are basically picked off a few at a time, by Seljuk raiders all along the way, and they're pretty easy targets. I mean, these huge caravans trying to make their way through the desert that they don't know, and uh, the Seljuks are mostly mobile cavalry, and they are just able to raid these guys to the point of uh, the, the second crusade basically disintegrates. And this leads us to another observation about the Crusades, and that is that armored knights are not really suited for combat in this environment. You might have thought it kind of strange when you heard about the first Crusade that guys in metal suits, I mean, which basically turn into ovens when you're in the desert, marching through unfamiliar land, where in particular they don't know where any of the sources of the water are located, which is a big factor. Uh, would be successful in a region where all the other successful militaries are highly mobile cavalry, which use distance weapons like bows and rely on rapid maneuver. Well, if you had doubts about that, you are correct. They should have gotten trounced the first time. I mean, the first crusade would have gotten completely trashed if the Muslims were at all organized. The fact that they succeeded is a testament to how badly organized the Muslims were, and how quickly the Second Crusade just completely falls apart, shows you how bad the resistance was in the First Crusade. But part of the problem we have now is that the first crusade did manage to set up kingdoms. They built lots of castles that I keep talking about. There are 38 major castles in this region. And again, you really have to go and see these things to get an idea of how huge they are. And I mean the effort of quarrying all this stone, that I mean these people didn't intend to go anywhere. And then there's countless minor forts. So in some sense, by 1150, they have managed to turn much of Palestine into the kind of territory in which knights actually could do well. Uh, the problem for them is when they go outside the walls of their city, they get defeated. And, and we've seen that with ad-Din We've seen that with Zengi. Anytime a crusader army comes outside of the castle, uh, I mean, he's basically able to defeat it pretty easily. Taking those castles... That's that's another problem. That's a big problem, and Salah is really the one who's going to crack that uh, when he adopts artillery from the Europeans, but that's a bit of a spoiler alert. All right, by now it seems like we are ready for the big jihad to go drive these crusaders out. But things change slowly. Nur ad-Din does have a vision of going after the Crusaders, but he has to spend a lot of his time against the other rival Muslim leaders. But the strangest episode, and really a critical one in this whole series of events, has got to be the invasion of Egypt. Uh, When we discuss this story, it's really going to illustrate a lot of the peculiarities of this time period. Uh, So let's look at this. Egypt, as you certainly remember, is the home of the Fatimid caliphate. Nur ad-Din, he is technically a vassal of the Abbasid caliph in Baghdad. Remember, he's he's working for the Seljuk sultan. But just how irrelevant these caliphs have become is illustrated in what happens next. So, there is actually a, a caliph in Cairo. He's a total figurehead, and in this case, he's actually a child. The country, of course, is being run by a vizier. Remember, vizier means like a, a prime minister, but in, by this point, they've really become generals, like military leaders. This one happens to be a fellow named Schauer. And that's a good name because when you hear his story, you kind of need to go take a shower. He is basically remembered in history as a pain in the neck. Now, by this time, the viziers get into office by killing each other. 14 out of the last 15 viziers had been killed by their successor. Shawar actually manages to survive, but he is driven out of office and driven out of Egypt by his usurper. Unfortunately, they didn't kill him because he's quite a sleazy character. Now, he doesn't want to accept that. He wants to get his job back. Now, as you've seen, at this time, you essentially go to anybody you can to try and get help. I mean, if the devil had a kingdom in this area, Shower would have gone to him to ask for help in a minute. In this case, though, he goes to the person who's probably the strongest in the area, and that's who who is ruling in Damascus. Just by the way, it was ad-Din's father, Zengi, who put Shower in charge in the first place. Now, you may be saying to yourself, but wasn't Zengi actually a servant of the Abbasid caliph and he's choosing the vizier of the Fatimid caliph? Yep. I mean, that's about the, the level that things have disintegrated to at this time. I mean, these caliphs are really irrelevant. So to ad-Din who is going on a really long game here of encircling the crusader kingdoms he's getting control of all of syria the idea of getting control of egypt would be huge for him i mean that's the southern flank of palestine and plus he's been very successful so he's he decides that yeah this is a great opportunity he's going to get influence in Egypt. I mean, he really doesn't care about Shawar, nobody really likes the guy, and that's probably appropriate, but he sees an opportunity, and so he sends Shirkuh, remember, who is his Kurdish military leader, and with him, his nephew Salah who's becoming increasingly important to Egypt to put Shawar back in power. I mean, you technically don't put him back on the throne, uh, but, I mean, essentially, you're putting him back in the position of power. And they're successful. They, they get Shower uh, back his job. Now, things might have ended right there. But like we said, Shawar is pretty much a sleaze. So once he's back in charge in Cairo, he doesn't like the idea that Sherkuh and Nur ad have a lot of influence. I mean, even though they're totally the reason that he's in power and probably the reason he's even alive, uh, he doesn't want to share his power with them. Now, Shawar is pretty weak himself, so he needs an ally to get rid of the forces that Nur ad-Din sent. Where is he going to turn? Well, by now, you can probably guess the answer to that. Shawar, the Muslim, goes to the crusader king of Jerusalem, not only against another Muslim ruler, but against the one who saved his life and put him in position. This incident right here is the world of the Crusades in a nutshell. Okay, I mean, this guy going to the crusader king so he can backstab his former boss. I mean, this is exactly what the environment is like. But it gets worse. Shower betrays Noradin not once, but three times. There are three successive crusader invasions of Egypt... They're all defeated by Nur ad-Din's army, which is commanded by Shirkuh. And increasingly, Salah ad is playing a bigger and bigger role. He's essentially going to become the number two guy in the army. The problem, though, is that the victories are not decisive enough for Shirkuh to gain total control of Egypt. So we have this situation where Shawar... Basically, remains in power in Cairo. This large army uh, that technically belongs to ad-Din remains in Egypt uh, for a substantial period of time. They're they're actually based in Alexandria, which is on, of course, on the Mediterranean, the old capital of Egypt. And the Crusaders are never defeated enough um, that they go away. So the the Crusader king, who's a mauric, and you, you'll see that name in many, many different variations. He's pretty aggressive. He's never defeated enough that he goes away, so he keeps launching invasion after invasion, ostensibly to go help his buddy, Shower. Now, of course... Uh, this very loyal guy, Shawar, doesn't trust his Crusader allies any more than his Muslim allies. And the Crusader King is not doing this out of sympathy for Shawar. He realizes that capturing Egypt himself would be huge for the Christians. I mean, basically, this would help them to be self-sufficient. Egypt was once known as the breadbasket of the empire. Okay, it's extremely important, uh, extremely important on the Mediterranean, and it would expand the crusader kingdoms to the point that, I mean, they would really be permanent if they could get control of Egypt. It's the same reason that Nordin wants control of it. By this time, he is supported by the Byzantine emperor, who is Manuel, who is one of the more aggressive and ambitious uh, Byzantine emperors. I mean, the the relations between the Crusaders and the the Byzantines go up and down, up and down. At this point, they're tight. And he is uh, prompted by the Knights Hospitaller which is one of the many organizations of crusader knights. Uh, We know that the Templars are the most famous ones, but they're not the largest ones. So you've got all these forces uh, joined together, and al-Mahrik, is very ambitious, sees that he's got the chance to take over Egypt. Now, I mean, if he were successful, he would not have kept Shawar uh, any longer than he needed to be. So in the year 1168... Amadric captures a key city in the Nile Delta, Bilbais, which is still there, uh, which is, is basically like a, a gateway to Cairo. And of course, being a good crusader, he massacres the inhabitants. At this point, finally, finally at this point, Shaur decides that the crusader king of Jerusalem is a bigger threat than Noradin. So what does he do, of course? I mean, with a straight face, he appears to Nora Dean again and asks for help. Now. I- we might look at this and say, who on earth would help this guy after he's betrayed everybody he comes in contact with? But, I mean, this is politics of the day. I mean, you make a deal, you betray your ally, you make a deal with someone else, you betray them. This is absolutely normal. The difference is, and this is probably shocking to Shower. it's an unfortunate conclusion, is that Nora Dean is not really this kind of guy. I mean he does play a lot of politics but he's he's not a guy like Zengi who would go along with something like this. He does not see this as fair game. So yeah, he realizes, Nur ad-Din realizes the threat of the crusaders even more and he definitely doesn't want them getting control of Egypt, but he's pretty much sick to death of Shawar by this time. Okay. Oh, and by the way, Nice guy, Shower uh, also burns down a large part of residential Cairo uh, to keep it out of the hands of the Crusaders. And he's, of course, well-loved by the populace for this, which is a, a another factor that by the time Shirkuh and Salah Adin get there, uh, the, the populace is going to be pretty welcoming to them. They'll, they'll be glad to get rid of Shower. So long story short, Shirkuh de- uh, defeats the Crusaders... Is sick of shower, so cuts his head off and takes over Egypt. Then, in another strange event in history, he dies very soon after that due to a heart attack, and it's generally attributed to his eating habits. Doesn't matter because his nephew, and by this time his second in command, Salah hadin, basically inherits the position of vizier of Egypt. Okay, now consider again how strange this is. Saladin is a servant of the Abbasid caliph in Baghdad, but is now running the Shiite Fatimid caliphate as the vizier of the Fatimid caliph. Again, it shows you how completely irrelevant those people are and how much it's it's the local warlords. Now, the caliph may be totally irrelevant politically, but that doesn't mean he's living in poverty. In fact, the descriptions of the luxury of the caliph's palace and the elaborate ceremony in which he technically appoints uh, Salah ad are, are just overwhelming, and remember, this is this is the facade here. Salah ad has taken over, but the caliph has to technically offer him the job, and so they do. But the, the stories of just this incredible wealth uh, that he lives under is it, normal. It's the same thing with the the caliph in Baghdad. He may be completely impotent, but I mean, he is living a life of luxury that I mean, few of us could imagine. Anyway, that does not sit well with a guy like Salah Hadin. He, again, is not that kind of guy. He actually wants to go back to his own city in Syria. He was given some small estates. He has some farms there. He wants to go back to the farm. Now, again, you have to take that with a pinch of salt. That's what the biographies of Salah Hadin say. I mean, they, they have to portray him as sort of this reluctant hero who, you know, just wants to go live on his farm with his family. But in any case, he he is not really the kind of guy who likes this sort of power politics in this outrageous luxury. Nur ad-Din, however, impresses upon him how important his position is there. They know Salah is very good. He's very honest. He's very reliable. And so, I mean, you definitely want to keep him there in charge in, in Egypt in this whole big chess game that's going on. Well, if Salah Adin has decided that he's going to have to stay in Egypt, he's not going to play these games. Okay, so he's known as the pious defender of Islam. He wants to focus on bringing the war to the Crusades. He has no patience for maintaining the outrageous luxury of a figurehead caliphate. Um, He's also known to be a pretty strict Sunni as well, so he's not going to, certainly not going to, support the Shiite state, and he's going to do a lot to bring back uh, Sunnism even while he's the vizier. And so if. Salah ad had gone back to Syria, intended his estate like he wanted, who knows what history might have been like. But that's not what happened. In the next chapter in the Muslim world, a chapter that's really going to run for centuries, you could argue up until the 20th century, is going to belong to Salah ad or as the West knows him, Saladin. And that is our next story. Thank you.